Hey, look at somebody and say, it's good to see you. Now, you can do a little better than that. They already got offended at you. Look at them and say, it's good to see you. Now look back at them and say, it's good to see me too. Uh, all right. Hey, uh, I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome to Crossroads Church. If you're first time here, we're so glad you're joining us today. My name's Sam. For those of you who don't know, I have the great privilege of being the lead pastor here at Crossroads. And what that means is every single week, I try to tell the greatest story ever told. Now, not because I'm some great communicator, or it's even my story, but I believe this story is a story about Jesus, and Jesus is the greatest person to ever walk the face of the planet. I actually believe he's more than just a person. I believe he's God in the flesh. So if you've ever asked the question, what is God like? You don't have to look any further than the person of Jesus. And we believe the Bible is this story about Jesus. We say this around here. We say it's all about Jesus. We wrote it on the wall if you need some help. And what that means is you're going to need a Bible to follow along. And so if you forgot your Bible, we got you covered. You can just slip up your hand and one of our ushers, Pastor Joe, will get one to you. And then if you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. We pray that you take that, read that every single day because every time you do, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen? Amen. Hey, I want you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. And uh, if you're new to the Bible, you can start in the right and turn left. You'll find uh, John chapter 16 much faster. You can go two-thirds of the way through. You'll find some guys' names, Matt, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're going to be in John chapter 16, starting in verse 5. We've been in this series entitled, So That You May Believe for uh, many, many weeks now. Coming up in this coming Easter will be one year in the book of John, and we are at a uh, doing an incredible rate. Uh, one season, we spent two years in the book of Mark, and so uh, we, uh, how many of you were here in our Mark series? It's always cool to see what series people have been a part of. Uh, we're going to talk about a couple of series today. Uh, so hey, look at John chapter 16, starting in verse 5. It says this, I do not say these things to you from the beginning. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell, um, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go Away. I want you to put an underline beside that, put an asterisk beside of it. It is important that you read that. There'll be times you go, man, if I could just, Jesus was just right in front of me. If I could just touch him, if I could just be with him. And yet he's going to say these words here. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, notice that helper is capitalized, helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then he defines them. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. C concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but I can, you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all truth. Notice he gives the title for the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of truth comes. He will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will 
speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come he will glorify me for he will not for he will take what is mine and declare it to you all that the father has is mine therefore i said he will take what is mine and declare to you will you pray with me gracious heavenly father we love you we thank you for who you are and who you are to us i thank you that you would challenge us today holy spirit i pray that you would uh, inform us and encourage us illuminate for us i know that you have the right words to speak i know that when i finish preaching a sermon oftentimes lord uh, people take different things from different parts and that's because you show us exactly what we need to hear you are the helper you are the spirit of truth and i pray that you'd help us today and let everything we say and do bring glory to you and good to this valley and everyone said hey man so we uh in this particular passage, here's what, here's what I want to do is I, I want to kind of look at the parts of the passage, kind of explain to you some of the major things that come up in this particular passage. And then I'm going to pull every trick I got out uh, in order to maybe try to explain in the most simplest way uh, I can some maybe difficult, deep things. And, and this past week, maybe you, uh, maybe you don't know, I do a group sermon prep throughout the week and I have some people, some faithful, uh, Bible guys. I, I got a, some armchair theologians, but I got some, uh, some, uh, former pastors in there, our staff and, and every single week. And I've been doing that for six and a half years being the lead pastor every single week. For the most part, we meet together and go through the text, and we read this particular text, and I can tell you uh, that our discussion had uh, little to nothing to do with this particular text, and uh, and you can tell that's a little stressful for me when I set out a sermon prep meeting and we didn't prep the sermon, and here's why: because we just started reading this passage, and what you'll find is that this particular passage, like others, when you read it, will unlock other parts of the scripture. It's, a, it's like entering into another room and then a, in a wardrobe inside of another room. And you'll just find that there are certain parts of the text that, that you go, man, what is that? I mean, have you ever read the Bible and had more questions after you read it than when you started? Just me? Okay, great. Uh, we should just stop here. Uh, you guys, are, amen. You have some questions, amen? Uh, I have some questions. You have some questions. And in each particular part of the scripture, the reality is, is that Bible interprets Bible. And so there are other parts of scripture that help us interpret the parts that we are reading. And so this particular part, man, we're talking about the person of God, the Holy Spirit. And, and, and oftentimes, even saying that in, in our particular culture that we've tried uh, to kind of secularize everything and despiritualize or maybe even over-spiritualize, and then uh, we don't see the Holy Spirit as a person but a force or many different things. But the Bible begins to describe in this particular passage from the person of Jesus, he says, I will send the helper, gives him a title, and then he... And then he gives him another title and he calls him the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. So we believe in one God represented to us in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy 
Spirit. And this is one of those passages that reveal to us his nature and the plurality of, of leadership and relationship in and of himself. Why is that important? To see God as a relational being in and of himself. So when the Bible describes God as love, he is actually describing who he is in the very essence of who he is. He's not describing that he is the most loving. He's saying he is the very definition, the pretext for which you define love in and of himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As theologians would call this the beautiful dance of the Trinity that has always existed for always and forever, the beautiful relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet in our culture, oftentimes what we, we do is it's Father, Son, and Holy Bible, Right? We kind of forget that, that the Spirit of God is there to help us because you already admitted that sometimes when you read the Bible, you have more questions than when you started. Amen. We're just going to keep admitting that to ourselves. This is group therapy, right? Uh, and, and, and so, yet yeah, we have more questions. But here's what the Bible says, that the Holy Spirit of God will help us. He'll illuminate for us. He'll begin to show us and lead us and guide us into all truth. Uh, the old time church would, would call the Holy Spirit, sometimes they would refer to him as the Holy Ghost. And here's the problem. How do you follow a ghost? Right, and I'm not even talking about from a from from a magical hocus pocus thing, but to to convince you that Christianity is far more than philosophy or ideology, but this is a personal tangible relationship with the Spirit of God who is there to help you. Amen. Have you ever felt like God helped you? You ever felt like God was there in the moment, present, our ever-present help in the time? Have you ever felt like, man, God just directed you? You didn't know why you were making a certain decision, or, or you felt lonely, and all of a sudden, what came to you as you called upon the Lord, you were flooded with joy and hope and peace. Can I tell you, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. That is the Holy Spirit with you. And the, and the Bible says this, that he will be with you. This is in the same conversation that Jesus has been having with the disciples. Where we are is Jesus has just finished the last supper. Judas has gone on his way to betray Jesus. They've left the last supper and they've made their way out into the courtyard and up to the garden of Gethsemane where he will be betrayed and arrested. And yet he's having these conversations. He's alerting them. They're, they're not aware of what exactly is going to happen. And he's telling them, I would tell you more, but your heart can't bear it. You can't seem to see because your perspective is limited and you don't know everything. Right? Amen. Right? Our perspective is limited. Amen. <laughs> and we don't know everything. Hey, man, wasn't that good for you? It was good for me, right? And yet we need to be reminded of that, that God is doing things that we can't perceive and we don't fully understand. And he's saying that to them. And, and here's the reality is you're not going to be able to figure him out. And so you've all the type A personalities in here. You would like to make sure that you, you have everything jotted down and every uh, I dotted and every T crossed. Can I tell you that if you can begin to understand 
God, not behold him, know more about him, to be around him, but you can begin to understand the depth of who he is. There's parts of it. But if you think that you have God figured out, man, can I just tell you that if your theology, and theology is a big word for what you think about God, if your theology has led you to believe that you have God figured out, it's fundamentally bad theology right? Because what has happened is you have now replaced God and you have become your own God. And I can just tell you right now, and your spouse would agree, you make terrible God, right? Let's just be honest. We make terrible gods because our perspective is limited and we don't know everything. And you already agreed to that. And so then his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And there are things that he knows and there are things that he's doing that we just can't bear. And so then we need help and we need more than ideology and philosophy and good advice. That's why the Bible is not full. Uh, it doesn't entitle these uh, books. It's not called John's advice. It's called John's gospel. Gospel means good news. See, there's a fundamental difference between good advice and good news. Good advice presumes on your ability to follow through with that advice. If I give you advice about uh, the interview that you're going to have with the employer that you, you want to get the job, I assume that you're able to carry out that advice and actually follow suit. See, good advice presumes on your ability, and good news is the announcement that something has happened, and now everything changes. And see, that's fundamentally different. And so the Bible is about good news. And this good news is about the person of Jesus. And yet when I read parts of this, there are going to be questions that come up that I need answered. And so in the gospels, here's, here's what we can kind of have a formula, if you will, for how, what questions that we have in what parts and what parts will answer those questions. And so when you get in the Old Testament, if you've ever, someone's ever given you the book of the Bible and you read it like a book, you started it in the beginning, which would probably be the worst thing that you could do anyways, right? Because you started it and then two books in, you got to Leviticus and you're like, or three, you're like, what? Say what, right? Like, well, I got some questions, okay? Amen, right? Should be honest, you, you started it, and then you're like, ah, I think we should stop, right? And so then the Old Testament brings up some questions. You know where the Old Testament finds its answers? In the Gospels, the stories of Jesus. But then Jesus said some things that even then he'll say, later you'll understand, and later they will come up. And the Spirit of God will remind you of what I said, and he'll connect the dots for you. And so when questions arise in the Gospels, the epistles begin to answer those questions for me. Are you following me? So then the rest of the New Testament, the same authors, John writes the Gospel of John, and then he writes the little Johns, 1, 2, and 3, and he writes the book of Revelation. And yet Paul would write uh, 16 books of the New Testament and begin to answer questions for us. Peter would write books of the New Testament to answer questions for us. And so in this particular passage, there's some questions that start to come up. The first one is when Jesus says, it would be better if I go away. And I gotta be honest, like I'm tempted to argue with the son of God, how about you? Can I just say you're picking the wrong fight, right? 
And, and, yet, and yet some of us would say, man, I just, I just wish that I could be there. I wish I would have lived back then. And let me remind you, the life expectancy back then, it was much shorter. And some of you would be dead. Anyways, uh, and, and, and so uh, yet uh, I, I could say I want him there. They, their hearts are troubled. No, Jesus, stay with us. And they believe that would be better. And he says it is to your advantage because if I don't, I will not be able to send the helper who will come and help you and lead you. He is the spirit of truth. Before this passage in 14, he's going to say that the Holy Spirit will come, the comforter will come, the advocate will come, and he will live he will be with you and he will live in you. With you and in you. And what a controversial statement. He's saying the spirit of God will live in sinful, broken people. And what, what has to happen for that to be a possibility. I mean, in that culture, the, the Spirit of God lived in the temple, visited and interacted with us. It was not that the temple uh, was a housing for him that limited him, but it was the place in which we were able to connect with God. It was the place where we could meet with God. And it was called the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest who would make sure that they were uh, uh, suited and clean and appropriate. They presented themselves in such a way that they could meet and interact with God. And if they approached him unworthy, then they would lose their lives. I mean, this is a difficult one to think. These are questions that come out. What do you mean, God, that I'm going to be the temple of the Holy Spirit? What do you mean that it would be better if you go away? Well, here's what we know. Here's what the New Testament tells us about the person of Jesus. And we started it off with this, that we believe that Jesus is more than just a person. We believe Jesus is God in the flesh. He is God in the flesh. John actually opens his book and he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then the word became flesh. In the Greek, it's this word logos. He actually steals a Greek word that the Greek philosophers were using in order to explain all of the universe. That scientists would even agree that the highest form of, in, uh, of intelligence is language. That they're stumped. That, that even evolutionary biologists can't explain the leap of how human beings are able to communicate the way they are. They cannot explain the gap in, in order to propagate their theory that somehow we evolved from animals, they still cannot explain our development of language. And you can figure that one out on your own, but you'll probably have to read some language to do it, right? And yet he says the logos, the intelligence, the highest form of intelligence became a man and dwelt among us. Another version will say that he made his tabernacle or temple. He made his, he pitched his tent among us. Philippians will tell me this, that Jesus, although God did not hold on to equality with God, this is Philippians 2, but it says that he emptied himself, poured himself out. Or in other words, he put boundaries on what it means to be 
God. The best analogy that I can give you, it's as if he took the entirety of the ocean and he poured it into a single glass. That is what it means for God to become a man. And he put boundaries on what it meant to be God and he became a single man. A baby born in a manger wrapped in golden fleece diapers. No. Right? Right. Comic relief. And he, he comes wrapped in swaddling clothes. He doesn't even play, have a place to lay his head. He becomes the, hum, the, the chief servant and the humble among us. He had all authority, uh, authority in heaven and on earth, and he did not hold on to it. Uh, but, but he emptied himself and put boundaries on his authority. How many people in authority put boundaries on their authority? right? They want boundaries for everyone else, but no one in authority puts boundaries on themselves. They want, they want authority beyond boundaries. I know it's hard to imagine a culture like this, but try to keep up, right? And if you can grasp what I'm saying, I have a teacher for you in the lobby. And, uh, and, and, yet, and yet leaders do not do that. We do not do that. We do not put boundaries on our own authority. But that's exactly what God did in the person of Jesus Christ. Philippians says this, the Greek word is kenosis. He emptied himself. He poured himself out. And he lived a selfless, obedient life unto death death on a cross. Or in other words, like us, we are not obedient by nature. We don't like for people to tell us what to do. How about you? Amen. This is, amen. Let's be like, I'm trying to tell you to do something right now and you don't like it and you're proving my point. And, uh, and yet we don't like for other people to tell us what to do. And yet Jesus comes who has all of authority. He's the one who should be giving the commands. He should be the one who, who is telling others. Yet he comes and fulfills the law, keeps all of the law, lives a selfless, obedient life unto death, death on a cross. And because of that, God the Father has given Jesus a name which is above every other name. How would the Bible thousands of years ago be able to predict that this man from Galilee who never traveled more than 150 miles from his home, he didn't have Twitter or Etsy, and somehow he would become the most famous person in human history. There's more on Google about Jesus than you, friend. Just try it out and see who wins. And yet the Bible knows that in the middle of persecution. The Bible writes that when Caesar is trying to extinguish Christians from the face of the earth and they know that he will become the most famous person in human history. He'll have a name which is above every other name. And so when Jesus says, it is better that I go away so the helper will come, it's because God, through the Son of God, Jesus, he has limited himself and poured himself into a single man lived a selfless, obedient life. He did what the Father told him to do through the power of the Son. Although he has all authority in heaven and on earth, this is the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Satan comes to him and says, no, 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 no. don't be obedient. Use your power for yourself. Don't fulfill this. Show them who you really are. And he lives a selfless, obedient, limited life. And what, what does that mean? That means that Jesus allowed himself to become a 
man, this one man. And I don't fully understand that. How about you? But if you were able to understand it, you would replace God and you would, full, you would be your own God. And so even John knows this. John writes in 1 John, he says, man, I don't know what we'll be like. When all this is said and done, I don't know what it's like. I saw him raised from the dead. And I'm, I'm tempted to believe someone who predicted his own death and his resurrection and pulled it off. I'm tempted to believe him over you. And he says, it's better that he goes away, even though I want to argue. He says, it's better that I'll send the comforter. At the time, Jesus' resurrected body looks completely different in the garden. They, they mistake, at the resurrection, they mistaken him for the gardener. They don't fully wrap their head. Thomas comes to him and somehow he's able to touch his wounds, feel his side. And then they watch him physically ascend to the right hand of the Father. And so he doesn't fully understand, but he knows that the Spirit of God will come and help. And in 1 John, he'll say this, I don't know yet what we'll be like, but I know that when I see Jesus face to face, I know I will be like him. Now think of the humility of John, who was with Jesus, wrote Bible. How many of you wrote Bible? Right? None of us. And yet he writes Bible and he says, I don't know what we'll be like. Man, wouldn't you be thankful if Christians just admitted the things they didn't know? <laughs> right? They were humble enough. So if the apostle John will say, hey, I don't have all the answers. I don't know, but here's what I do know. I know we'll be like him. Be weary of the person who comes to you saying confidently they know what God has for your life. Amen. And so then test that and be careful of that. Be humble that you don't point your finger at other people declaring what God has for them when you don't fully know what it's going to be like. Someone say amen to that. He says, I don't know what it will be like, but I know that when I see him, we will be like him. And so Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. He tells them to go in Jerusalem and wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon them and empowers them and fills them. And that happens on the day of Pentecost. And we read that story in Acts 2. And here's ultimately what we have to address that this passage, we could preach many other things. This is why I said it in the sermon prep. Once we read the text, it took us so many other places. Because here's what he's going to say. And the first question is, why is it better? Because God has limited himself in the person of Jesus. And so he sends his spirit in order to live with us and in us. Amen. And so he, here's, here's where we have to go with that. Like, how is that even possible? Well, the first thing he says is the Holy Spirit, what he will do when he comes, he will convict the world of sin. He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He actually gives three categories for what the Holy Spirit will do. And he says concerning sin, he says that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin in that they did not believe or do not believe in me. Or in other words, they're going their own way and will not go God's way. And so the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and here's, here, here's what we need to define. This word convict, it has a lot of depth to it. 
And so the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we could say this, that the conviction of the Holy Spirit is to bring to my attention like a sign that I'm going the wrong way. See, last week we talked about belief drives behavior. And so the conviction of sin, sin means to miss the mark or go my own way. And so the first thing the Holy Spirit will do is say, stop, you're going the wrong way. Now, conviction is quite different than condemnation. To condemn something is to, uh, to seal their fate. It's a verdict. They have been condemned and convicted. But this, this conviction of the Holy Spirit is to make me aware. Condemnation has with it the idea of punishment attached to it like I could see the difference between my kids if you notice uh, that when you get onto a child oftentimes my boys even if I'm saying something instructional oftentimes there can be a fear of punishment. I go, no 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 I'm just telling you hey I just want to lead you in this direction I don't want you to do that we're not at the point of punishment this is about making you aware of the behavior that you need to have. And so there's this difference between conviction and condemnation. The Bible will actually say that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That the old has been rendered powerless, and behold, all is new. So this conviction is primarily to point that people are going away from Jesus, and they need to turn to Jesus. And if you remember what that moment was like for you, that moment realizing you're going the wrong way can be a heavy emotional moment. I remember it was many years ago, I, I was visiting my dad at the time in, in Panama City Beach, Florida. And I lived in Eastern Kentucky at the time. My dad was in Panama City Beach, it was about a 13 hour drive. And back then I used to ride a Harley. Yeah, it used to be cool, right? And, uh, and I, now I uh, drive a family van. And, uh, and so I, I rode my Harley down to Panama City Beach. And, and when I left and I, I was coming back, uh, I'd left early that morning and it's a long drive. And I decided I was going to drive the whole way. But at one particular time, my, my parents said, hey, we'll come meet you so you don't have to go all the way from Georgia, North Georgia to Kentucky. And so we'll bring a trailer and, and we'll kind of trailer it the rest of the way, my mom and my stepdad. And so they were meeting me in Dalton, Georgia, which is just right on the, the Tennessee, Georgia line. And I know this is really hard for you guys from California because if you drive, if you live in the South and you drive for three hours, you end up in another state. If you're in California, you drive for three hours, you end up in Bakersfield, right? And, uh, and so, so you end up in a multi-state, you know, area. And so I'm in, I'm in Florida and I'm driving north and man, I'm hauling. And for, the, there's kids in the room. I was driving the speed limit the entire time, right? And, and, and I'm driving and I, I make it to Atlanta, Georgia, right as the sun is setting. And it's beautiful. I only have an hour home. And so, man, I'm motivated. I'm going to, to just haul as fast and as hard as I can go for the next hour. And if you've ever been in Atlanta, Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia has a freeway system that, that rivals the Autobahn, okay? And when people tell me about traffic, this is the worst traffic in the United States because you're like, oh yeah, LA's got the worst traffic. It's like, yeah, but you're going five mile an hour. <laughs> 
okay? This is the worst traffic, and they're going 85 miles an hour, right? Like afterwards, uh, a... uh, a chief, assistant chief for the CHP who's here, and uh, he said, man, I can identify. I've been in Atlanta, Georgia. You're talking about traffic. Man, it is insane. I mean, people get in car accidents. They just sweep it to the sideline. They're like, oh, wave, the, wave the flag. Let's get going, right? Like, they just move stuff to the side, and, and cars are coming in everywhere, and I'm on this, this, this Sportster, and I don't have a windshield. It's not one of those touring bikes. I mean, this is, this is one of those little hard-riding bikes I got a full face helmet on and I've been riding for 11 hours already. And I get to, I get to Atlanta, Georgia and the freeway system in Atlanta, there's, there's one highway, I-75 that goes right up through and takes you on all the way north. But then there's the 285 that circles around the city and that's going to take you to the airport. That's going to take you in any direction that you're going to go. And I just take off. And for the next hour, I don't think about anything else. I'm just going forward. I don't look at, I'm in the fast lane and I go and I'm hauling for one hour, as hard and as fast as I can go. And then I see a sign that says 15 miles to Savannah, Georgia. And I realize that I've been driving an hour in the wrong direction, friends. I have made a wrong turn. And can I tell you that that was an emotional time for me in my life, all right? I'm telling you, I had a nervous breakdown. I'm now in the dark on a motorcycle on the side of the road, and instead of going north, I've hit another freeway, and I am almost to the coast. And this was an emotional roller coaster for me. There was a sign that says you're going the wrong way. Do you remember what that was like for you? You know, that was like that moment that you were, you were headlong, you were determined. You knew this is what your life was for. You knew this was the direction you were going. See, many of us have those stories in our lives that we were going headlong. We knew exactly where we were going. We knew exactly the way to go. And no one could tell. We got blinders on and we're going to go as hard and as fast as we can possibly go. And then the Holy Spirit of God puts signs in our lives. And he says, hey, you're going the wrong way. You're going the wrong direction. And see, man's friend, it's not a bad thing to realize, but it can be a difficult thing. It can be a difficult and glorious day. The moment the Holy Spirit of God puts a sign in your life and says, friend, you've been going the wrong way. Someone needs to say amen to that. I mean, I'm thankful for, some of us need to be thankful that even though we were hard in the wrong direction, God put people in our lives to be a sign. He put grace in our lives to be a sign. He said, hey, man, I love you. Let's go here. The way forward starts right here, but you have to repent. And repentance is this, to change the way you think so you go somewhere different. It's to, it's to acknowledge the signs, to see the signs that God's put in our life, that the Holy Spirit is wooing and change your direction. <laughs> to not be dogmatic and hard-hearted and go, you know what? I started this direction. I guess I'm going to Savannah tonight, right? No, as hard as it will be, as long as the journey will be, I need to turn and go in the right direction. And it will be the right thing to do. See, the Holy Spirit of God convicts the world of sin that they're going the wrong direction. He is screaming for us. He convicts the world of sin that they have gone astray. 
And he is wooing them. The apostle Paul had this sign. He was on his way to murder Christians on a road to Damascus. And his sign was the risen Lord appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul, his Hebrew name, that God, he would start using his, his, his Greek name version, Paul, in order to reach the Gentiles. And you and I are the beneficiaries of a man who was on his way to kill Christians and was radically converted because he saw the risen Christ. And he had a ministry to Gentiles like you and I that now thousands of years later, he would write 16 books of the Bible and he would go to his death in order to preach this good news, not good advice that something's happened and we have to change because something has happened. Someone say amen, amen to that. The next thing is he says, is he says he will convict the world concerning righteousness. Concerning righteousness. Well, what is righteousness? Righteousness means that you and God, you're cool, right? It means that you're right. Or all right, all right, all right, okay? It means that, that you and God are right. You're in right standing with God. But how do I know that? Especially if Jesus is not in front of me. So the Holy Spirit will come and show what is right and point to Jesus. He says that, that he will come and convict the world concerning sin and concerning righteousness. Now this brings up some questions. What has to happen for that? What does that mean? Well, the New Testament begins to define that for us. And so uh, I, I use this in uh, a series in the book of Romans. It's the best illustration that I can come up with it. And at one particular time, it's been years. How many of you were here when we taught through the book of Romans? See, the church grows. <laughs> so then in a few years when I'm like, Hey, how many of you remember when we preached through John? All you people were like, yeah, that was us, right? And, and so uh, it, the book of Romans is basically Paul's dissertation. And he begins to explain to us what Jesus means by righteousness and how indeed we actually can be righteous. Because ultimately, John will write in 1 John, he'll say this, if any of you say you're without sin, I call you a liar. His words, not mine, don't shoot the messenger, right? I call you a liar. H how many of you in here believe you're without sin? Will the real Slim Shady please stand up, right? <laughs> None of us. He says, if you say you're without sin, I call you a liar. And the truth of God is not in you. The truth of God is not in you. What does John say in this passage? What is the title that he gives the Holy Spirit? The spirit of truth. And he describes it as the truth of God not being in you. What does the Holy Spirit do? He makes you aware that you are sinful and that you need a savior. And so if you deny that reality, then the spirit of God is not in you. But all of us already saying, no, 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 that's not me. I know I'm flawed. You can know the Holy Spirit is already at work in your life. And that's good news. Amen. And so then Paul begins to tell us about what this righteousness thing is. And he starts Romans, Romans 1.16 this way. And he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, not good advice. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. 
Now, why would he say that? Because it's controversial. He's going to say in another part, he's going to say this whole message is foolishness to the Greeks and a scandal to the Jews. But I preach Christ and him crucified. This is a scandal and foolishness. But this is truth. And the spirit of truth will begin to show it to you. And so he begins to open the book. And see, here's the reality. These books were not written for you to read in certain parts, even like this sermon, where we read one part. And then, man, we have to go all over the map to understand these parts of the scripture. The Bible was never meant, especially these letters, to be written and sectioned off. They were meant to be read in succession and in its entirety every single time. And yet, we can miss parts because we don't understand the parts before, the parts after. And so the best way I can give you this is Romans chapter one starts like this. After he says, I'm not ashamed, he gives a category. And he says, there's some people in the world that just ain't right, all right? <laughs> That's how my mom and them said it, all right? And, and, and so, okay, let me ask you this. You ever looked around the world and thought some people ought not do some of the things that they do? Don't look at them, don't look at them, right? <laughs> Right? You ever, you, ever thought, you ever thought to yourself, you've looked, you've scanned the bottomless pit that is the interwebs and thought they ought not do that. Oh, you can do better. Yeah. Amen. Right? Don't lie. <laughs> You're like, God, right? They, I don't, they ought not do that. That's why they say, I call it the oughts and the ought nots. And you go, they ought to do this and they ought not do that. And yet Romans 1 says there's some people who have thrown caution to the wind. They've, they've, they've bit their thumb at God and they've said, we're going to do our own thing. Whether you say we ought or ought not, we're going to make our own truth. And Romans says this, that there are some people who've traded the truth of God for a lie. And they would rather worship created things rather than the creator God who's forever to be praised. And they would say, listen, no, 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 no. Your way's not best. My way is best. And I'm going to do my thing whether you like it or not, no matter what the world tells me. They're going to look at God's invisible attributes through creation. Do you know that God has revealed himself through creation and declares the goodness of God? That when you look at a sunset, you look at uh, Yosemite, and, and you look at these, these great creative structures and mountains and all the things in creation that it is declaring the goodness of God and the design that if there's a building, there must be a builder. If there's a painting, there must be a painter. If there is creation, there must be a creator. So then no one would be without excuse that when they look around, they can see that God is real and wooing, but they traded that truth. Instead of listening to the spirit of truth, they would let her, rather make truth on their own. And they've traded the truth of God for a lie. And the Bible refers to these people as unrighteous. Or in other words, they're just not right with God. They're not in alignment with God. They're outside. They have, they have allowed sin to be their master. Or in other words, to go their way versus God's way. And the Bible says this, the wrath of God is stored up for the unrighteous. The wrath of God is stored up. Well, Pastor Sam, man, I don't know about this wrathful God thing. Have you ever looked at things that aren't right and thought someone should do something about it? You ever look at the 
atrocities around the world? Have you ever thought they hurt children? Someone should stop them. Have you ever thought, man, they are genocidal? Someone should stop them. Man, they do whatever they want and they think it's right on their own. Someone should stop them. You long for the wrath of God. The reality is, is that's a difficult thing for us because the reality is, is we're the bad guy in somebody else's story. Man, someone's prayed, God, deliver me from Sam Kaiser. Don't look at my wife, okay? Right? But that's the reality. But some people would, would say, I don't care what God says. I'm gonna do my way, and that's unrighteous. But then chapter two comes, and it gives a different category. And chapter two describes people who the Bible would consider self-righteous. And, and, and chapter two says, listen, friend, don't presume on the love of God. Don't you realize it's the love of God that leads men to repentance? Now we defined that last week. That doesn't mean go along to get along. That doesn't mean anything goes. Clearly he's giving some categories here, but love Love like a sign saying you're going the wrong way. Come with us. You're broke down. You can jump in our vehicle. Come on. That boat don't float. Come this way. That's the love of God. We have a space and a place for you. And there's room for everyone. But see, you think in this seat, you're right on your own. You think that your good deeds and your moralizing and your categorizing of sin, you're like, well, I'm just glad I'm not that guy right? And you look over to them and like, man, I can't believe you guys do that stuff. I would never do that, right? Could you imagine? Could you imagine looking at somebody else and go, listen, you know what? I never touched that. I never tasted that. I would never go there or be a part of that. And the Bible describes that as self-righteousness. And self-righteousness is really unrighteousness. And the Bible says the wrath of God is stored up for those who think on their own, puff out their chest and think they're right. That played out in the early church with religious leaders. It plays out in the church today. We look at the world around us and we criticize the world around us and point fingers because their sin looks different than ours, but you already admitted that you are not without sin, amen? You already admitted the spirit of truth has revealed to you that there are things in you that aren't right and need to be fixed. And can you imagine if these two seats were in the same boat? Could you imagine this guy going, hey, bro, dude, there's a tidal wave of the wrath of God coming for you, right? Man, he's going to get you, right? And he's like, dude, we're in the same boat, Right? Like, what do you mean? Right? Could you imagine the, like, pointing to your finger? That's what Romans 2 is because Romans 3 says there's no one good. No, not one. All of sin. Romans 3 goes on. Doesn't matter if you're in this seat. Doesn't matter if you're in this seat. Nobody. You can try it on your own. You can think you're moralizing and your church duties and all your things make you right, but that's self-righteousness and that's unrighteousness. That's not right with God. And you've traded the truth of God. You've redefined on your own what good and evil is. And you'd rather worship yourselves than the creator of God. And that's not right. And the wrath of God is coming to fix all that isn't right. That's Romans 3. And then you go, friend, here's the reality. Everyone in this room... You're sitting in one of these two seats. That's reality. And this boat has a hole in it. 
Humanity's broken and it's sinking and it's in need of a savior, in need of someone to rescue. Man, I, but here's the good news. You gotta, when you get to a part where you go, man, I don't know what that says about God and I don't know what that says about me, keep reading, amen? Romans 3.23 says this, but now, but now there's a righteousness of God apart from the oughts and the ought nots. Apart from the law and all of the law and all the prophets attest to it. And it comes through faith in Jesus because all have sinned and fall short of the glory and beauty and renown of who God is. When you think of the righteousness of God, think of all that is beautiful, all that is glorious, all that is worthy of praise. And you know there's been times in your life where you've acted less than beautiful. Where you found yourself, man, I, that was ugly. That wasn't glorious. That wasn't right. The Bible says we've all fallen short of that. But there's a way to be right. A way to escape. To be resurrected from this grave. From the death and reality that you can't make it on your own. You're moralizing your good deeds. You thinking you're better than other people because you don't do certain sins that they do. Or people who you feel are too far gone. They would never turn. But yet the Holy Spirit of God is convicting the world of sin that they've gone the wrong way. And there is a Jesus. There is an answer. The Holy Spirit is showing us what true righteousness is. But now there's a way to be right with God apart from the law. And it comes through faith in Jesus. For God put forth Jesus... And this big theological word that we've kind of lost in our culture, this word is a propitiation. The ESV will say propitiation. The NIV will say a sacrifice of atonement. Atonement means to cover, to cover over. It's like when you go out to eat with somebody and you're looking at the bill and he's like, I got you. I'll cover it. I'll pay the price. I'll pay the bill. That's what atonement is, to fulfill the debt, to cover over. And he goes on to say that God allowed sin to go unpunished in his divine patience. When you think God is frustrated with you, know he's more patient than you are. When you think God will cut you off, know you cut people off. He is slow to anger, abounding in love longing for everyone to come. It says that at the perfect time, at the right time, think about his timing, the Roman government, a crucifixion. That's the right time. I would have picked a different time, but that's the right time. That he would put forth Jesus as a fulfillment of the wrath of God that he might be the just and the one who justifies. If it was a court of law, it would be this. So that he could be the just judge who punishes the wicked. Because if there's ever been an unimaginable crime, you want the maximum sentence. 
You don't want him to give him six months probation. You would never call that judge good. You call him corrupt because the punishment has to fit the crime. And so in order for you to see God is just and also merciful, the merciful jury, even though we stand con condemned and convicted, that he put forth Jesus as a fulfillment. But it doesn't always look that way. Here's the reality. I, I use this analogy. I told you I'm going to bring out all the tricks today. I use this at Christmas, this analogy. Could you imagine if it was your birthday and I showed up and I was like, I got you a gift. <laughs> You're like, that's a trash bag. That's not a gift, right? And you really, I see what you think about me. You wrap that in that. And yet, when you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, it doesn't look like a gift. You know what it looks like? Tragedy. You know what it looks like? The payment for sin. The brutal reality of the cross. It's why Jesus compares himself to the snake on a pole in the wilderness. Maybe you're not familiar with that story, but you've seen it on an insurance logo. And yet he compares himself to a snake. I've been thinking, oh, you don't look like a snake, Jesus. Well, on the cross, he did. The third part of this passage says, because the ruler of this world is judged. See, the Bible says this, God made him who knew no sin to be sin. He wrapped him in trash. He wrapped him in sin and he put sin to death on a cross. The Bible says that he condemned sin in his body of flesh. Man, that doesn't look like a gift, but it's the greatest gift. And when you behold it, you think, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on my behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. See, God wrapped Jesus in our sin and he put it to death and he buried it so that a new life could be raised again, that you and I could join him in his death, that we might join him in his life, that we might become the righteousness of God. He wrapped him in our sin that you and I might be wrapped in his righteousness. So that then when the father looks at you and I, you know what he sees? Jesus. He sees Jesus. So then you might become the temple of the Holy Spirit. You ever have guests come over to your house? You know they're coming and you're looking at your house like, oh, we got, we got to get rid of all this, <laughs> right? <laughs> no, just me. I got four demons that destroy my house often, friends. They're like, they're angels. I was like, angels don't make messes like that, friend. Those are demons, right? 
Like you're just like, man, let's get rid, let's get rid of all this and see, here's what happens. The enemy lies to you and says, in order for Christ to live in you, you got to clean yourself up. See, the enemy will lie to you and say, you got to hide all this. You got to hide from him. You got to deal with all your junk and all your trash. You got to shove it to the back and let him not see it. He already knows friend and he's already paid the price. He's already paid the price to clean you and he'll trade you your mess. So you don't have to clean up. He's cleaned you up. He's paid the price. And the Holy Spirit says, trust that. Believe that. When the enemy comes in and says, you're, you're wicked. You're gonna pay. You say, Christ has already paid my payment. When he says, you you should be ashamed, you tell the enemy he already bore my shame. He took it all and I'll trust that he put it to death so I could live with him. Will you pray with me? Gracious heavenly father, we love you and we thank you for who you are and who you are to us. We thank you the Holy Spirit has given us a sign that many of us have made the decision to turn, stop going our way headlong, but to go your way. I thank you that the righteousness that we have is not from our own doing, but it's through faith in what you've done. We were sinking in our own morality. And this boat don't float. We need you to rescue us, to resurrect us. And the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead quickens us and makes us alive and shows us that Jesus is Lord because of what he's done. That's not good advice, that's good news. And now everything changes. Help us, Holy Spirit. Lead us and guide us because you are the helper, the spirit of truth who leads us forward. Let everything we say and do bring glory to you and good to this valley. And everyone said, amen. Will you give Jesus one more hand clap of praise?